Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. of the night. Come on into the cabin here in the Shenandoah. It appears that spring has, as they say, sprung. Still chilly here and there, but the sun shines on your face during the day, leaving you to wonder where it is. Darkness falls on the trees. But, settle in. We've got some stories this evening, but of other stuff up front, we will be hearing from Tony again this week as we are in pledge drive season. First, I wanted to mention a concept trailer that's found its way to me. The title is The Internet Once. The concept is brilliant and possible. A massive hotel chain feels threatened by Airbnb and simply pipes all bookings to a dark net server where weirdos know the who's and why's of where people are staying. I hope this project takes off. It looks horrifying. Secondly, do you like cookies? Do you like predatory aliens that lay eggs in your stomach that, when hatching, explode out of your chest? How about a cookie jar inspired by the work of H.R. Geiger? When I was a kid, I saw Alien and Aliens, and those movies freaked me out. When this cookie jar came across my desk, I figured that the children of the night might be interested in one. This is an unpaid sort of thing, by the way. The quality of this cookie jar might be terrible. I have no idea. But it looks cool. Check it out. It'll be in the show notes. And don't forget, our sister podcast, Starship Sofa, is up for the Hugo Awards Best Fan Cast. I'd appreciate it if you passed a vote on to them. Link will be in the show notes. And now, before our fiction, let's hear from Tony. We come to you with hat in hand, as he would say. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this the second installment for our Tales to Terrify 
month-long fun drive, just to make sure everyone's kind of aware that this show and do others in the District of Wonders need support, need your help. And the best way is for kind of, honestly, is for me to kind of come on, cap in hand, and just, you know, point you, make you aware that we've got a Patreon page. And if you would be kind enough, if you can, you know, support this show, support the other shows, we get that, you know, funds are tight for everyone. That's, you know, please just don't, don't, you know, fast forward this, just move on to the stories. We totally get that. But if you can, you know, support, that would be fantastic. One of the goals in, you know, the kind of whole district of wonders, you know, looking further ahead is to kind of pay the writers. And if we can do that, that would just be stunning. Yeah, I'm talking, you know, Starship's over has been, you know, we're in our 10th year. To be able now to kind of, in the 10th year, to kind of pay a writer for a story, that would be truly, you know, awesome. And it's the same for Tales to Terrify. I've supported Stephen, and I know everyone who's involved in Tales to Terrify. That's the goal. Do you know what I mean? The kind of ultimate goal is to kind of pay the writers what they deserve. Like mentioned there, 10 years, and Tales of Terrify has been going a few years as well. You know, it would be nice to give something back, you know, to the kind of writers who are just sitting there, you know, giving with the kind of the crown, their crown jewels, and, you know, we share it for everyone. So everyone's getting the benefit of what these writers do. And it would be nice to kind of, you know, honour the writers and pay the writers what they deserve. And that's the goal. If you come over to the Patreon page, you will see the kind of reward system. What we hope to achieve and hope to do is only pay the writers. Do you know what I mean? That would be truly spectacular. If you think you want to be part of that and you want to just help, you know, the whole shows keep going. We really would appreciate it. Do you know what I mean? From the bottom of my heart, and I know I've, I've spoken to Stephen about it a few times, and I know everyone tells Terrify we really do appreciate you you know we love doing the show and we'll we'll you know f- for whatever we can keep going as long as we can do you know what i mean that's not a problem but it'd be nice to get some support and it'd be nice to kind of you know pay the writers what they you know for all these times every story that's been on we've had this network now i've no idea how many stories we've played for free it's about time we kind of, you know, stepped up to the mark and tried to kind of put something in place where we can kind of pay the writers back. And like I say, it's on the Patreon page, you know, our kind of support system where what we hope to achieve, if if that's possible. You know, and looking right down the, the kind of whole, you know, aspect, actually give the staff at Tales to Terrify something as well for the hard work. You know what I mean? That would be for me personally. Do you know what I mean? Oh, it's just, it's awesome what everyone does and... I sometimes have to think, wow, it, if it wasn't for the kindness of people, you know, we, we wouldn't have it. You know, every week these shows come out and it would be nice just to kind of say thank you to the staff. You know, Stephen, Phil, Scott, Laura, just doing it every week. Do you know what I mean? Just kind of along with the work, the day life, everything like that. Just, you know, doing some good on Tales of Terrifying. We appreciate a little reward and I would love to do that. Let's make it happen. You know, honestly, I can't say anything more than that from the bottom of my heart. If you can afford to support Tales to Terrify, come over to the Patreon page. You can see that there's a 
price list there, or price list, there's a kind of structure where you can donate whatever you like, you know, the littlest amount makes the biggest difference, so don't worry about whatever you can afford, do you know what I mean, it, it, all, it all helps in the District of Wonders, thank you so much. Thank you, Tony, and I cannot agree with you more. Having the ability for us to become a show that can compensate its authors, narrators, and maybe one day its staff would be great. For anyone who has held a pen and tried to make something creative, it's work, and I'd love to reward it. And for those of you who are not familiar with the process of recording a narration, it's got some time and effort that goes into it. Tony's goals really do put us staff last on the list of people who would see any of your money, and we like it that way. This has been a labor of love since day one, and being able to increase the quality across the board of the entire District of Wonder is something the staff would want to see before seeing any extra money in our wallets. Sincerely, Patreon link will be in the show notes. Our first story of the night, Champion Mojo storyteller Joe R. Lansdale is the author of over 40 novels and numerous short stories. Work has appeared in national anthologies, magazines, and collections, as well as numerous foreign publications. He has written for comics, television, film, newspapers, and internet sites. His work has been collected in more than two dozen short story collections, and he has edited or co-edited over a dozen anthologies. He has received the Edgar Award, eight, eight Ram Stoker Awards, the Horror Writers Association Lifetime Achievement Award, the British Fantasy Award, the Grinzani Cavour Prize for Literature, Brodotus Historical Fiction Award, the Inkpot Award for Contributions to Science Fiction and Fantasy, and many others. His novella, Bubba Hotep, was adopted to film by Don Toscarelli, starring Bruce Campbell and Ossie Davis. His story, Incident on and Off a Mountain Road, was adapted to film for Showtime's Masters of Horror, and he adapted his short story, Christmas with the Dead, to film himself. The film adaptation of his novel, Cold, in July, was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. He is currently co-producing several films, among them The Bottoms, based on his Edgar Award-winning novel with Bill Paxton and Brad Wyman, and The Drive-In with Greg Nicotero. He is based in residence at Stephen F. Austin State University and is the founder of the martial arts system Shen Chuan, Martial Science and its affiliate, Shen Chuan Family System. He is a member of both the United States and International Martial Arts Hall of Fame, he lives in Nagadoches, Texas, with his wife, dog, and two cats. Anyone who may be listening that lives in that town, please accept my apologies for the pronunciation of the name. And now we will hear Joe R. Lansdale's The Dump. Me? I like it here just fine. Don't see no call for me to move on. Dump's been my home nigh on... Twenty years. I don't think no highfalutin city sanitation law should make me have to pack up and move on. If I'm going to work here, I ought to be able to live here. Me and Otto, where is that sucker anyway? I let him wander about some on Sundays. Rest of the time, I keep him chained inside the hut there, out of sight. Wouldn't want him biting folks. Well, as I was saying, the dump's my home. 
Best damn home I ever had. I'm not a college man, but I got some education. I read a lot. I ought to look inside that shack and see my bookshelves. I may be a dump yard supervisor, but I'm no fool. Besides, there's more to this dump than meets the eye. Excuse me. Otto! Otto! Here, boy! Dad burn his hide! He's gotten bad about not coming when I call. Now, I was saying about the dump. There's more here than meets the eye. You ever thought about all that garbage, boy? They bring anything and everything here, and I doze her under. There's animal bodies. That's one of the things that interest old Otto. Pink cans, all manner of chemical containers, lumber, straw, brush, you name it. I doze all that stuff under, and it heats up. Why, if you could put a thermometer under that earth, check the heat that stuff puts out while it's breaking down and turning to compost, it would be up there, boy, way up there. Sometimes over a hundred degrees. I've plowed that stuff open and seen the steam flow out of there like a cloud. Could feel the heat of it. It was like being in one of them fancy baths. Saunas, they call them. Hot, boy, real hot. Now you think about it. All that heat. All those chemicals and dead bodies and such. Makes an awful mess. A weird blend of nature's refuse. Real weird. And with all that incubating heat? Well, you consider it. I'll tell you something I ain't told nobody else. Something that happened to me a couple years ago. One night, me and Pearlie, that was a friend of mine, and we called him that on account of he had the whitest teeth you'd ever seen. Darn things looked pointed they were so white. Oh, let's see, where was I? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, uh, me and Pearlie. Well, we were sitting around out here one night shooting the breeze, you know, sharing a pint. Pearlie, he used to come around from time to time, and we'd always split a bottle. He used to be a legit old-time hobo, rode the rails all over this country. Why, I reckon he was going on seventy years, if not better but he acted twenty years younger. He'd come around, and we'd talk and sit and snort and roll with some of that Prince Albert, which we'd smoke. We had some good laughs. We did. And I miss old Pearly sometimes. So that night, we let the bottle leak out pretty good, and Pearly, he's telling me about this time down in Texas in a boxcar with the river trash whore and he stops in mid-sentence, right at the good part, and says, You hear that? I said, I don't hear nothing. Go on with your story. He nodded and told the tale, and I laughed, and he laughed. He could laugh better at his own stories and jokes than anyone I'd ever seen. After a bit, Pearlie gets up and walks out beyond the firelight to relieve himself. You know. And he comes back right quick zipping his fly and walking as fast as them old stiff legs of his will take him. There's something out there, he says. Sure, 
I say. Armadillos, coons, possums, maybe a stray dog. No, he says. Something else. Ah, I've been a lot of places, boy, he says. He always called me boy on account of I was twenty years younger than he was. And I'm used to hearing critters walk about. That don't sound like no damn possum or stray dog to me. Something bigger. I start to tell him that he's full of it, you know. And then I hear it, too. And a stench like you wouldn't believe floats in the camp here. A stench like a grave opened up on a decomposing body, one full of maggots and the smell of earth and death. It was so strong, I got a little sick. What, with all the rot gut in me? Pearly says, you hear it? And I did. It was the sound of something heavy, crunching down that garbage out there, moving closer and closer to the camp, like it was a fear to the fire, you know? I got the heebie-jeebies, and I went into the hut there and got my double barrel. When I came out, Pearly had pulled a little old thirty-two colt out of his waistband and a brand from the fire, and he was heading out there in the dark. Wait a minute, I called. You just stay put, boy. I'll see to this, and I'll see that whatever it is gets a hole in it. Maybe six. So I waited. The wind picked up, and that horrible stench drifted in again, very strong this time. Strong enough so I puked up the hooch I drink. And then suddenly from the dark, while I'm leaning over, throwing my guts out on the ground, I hear a shot. Another one. Another. I got up and started calling for Pearly. Stay the hell where you are, he called. I'm coming back. Another shot. And then Pearly seemed to fold out of the darkness and come into the light of the fire. What is it, Pearly? I said. What is it? Pearly's face was as wide as his teeth. He shook his head. Ain't never seen nothing like it. Listen, boy, we gotta get the hell out of Dodge. That sucker, it's... He let his voice trail off, and he looked towards the darkness beyond the firelight. Come on, Pearly, what is it? I tell you, I don't know. I couldn't see real good with that there firebrand, and it went out before too long. I heard it down there crunching around, over there by that big hill of garbage. I nodded. That was a pile I had heaped up with dirt for a long time. I intended to break it open next time I dozed, push some new stuff in with it. It, uh, it was coming out of that pile, Pearly said. It was wriggling like a great gray worm, but there were legs all over it. Fuzzy legs. In the body, it was jelly-like. Lumber, fence wire, all manner of crap was sticking out of it. Sticking out of it like it belonged there. Just as natural as a shell on a turtle's back, or the whiskers on a cougar's face. It had a mouth, a big mouth, like a railway tunnel, and what looked like teeth. But the brand went out then. I fired some shots. It was still wriggling out of that garbage heap. It was too dark to stay there. He cut in mid-sentence. The smell was strong now. 
solid as a wall of bricks. It's moving into camp, I said. Must have come from all that garbage, Pearly said. Must have been born in all that heat and slime. Or come up from the center of the earth, I said, though I figured Pearly was a mite near closer to right. Pearly put some fresh loads in his revolver. This is all I got, he said. I want to see it eat buckshot, I said. Then we heard it. Very loud. Crunching down those mounds of garbage like they was peanut holes. And then there was silence. Pearly, he moved back a few steps from the double barrel toward the shack. I aimed the double barrel toward the dark. Silence went on for a while. Why, you could have heard yourself blink. But I wasn't blinking. I was a-watching out for that critter. Then I heard it. But it was behind me. I turned just in time to see a fuzzy-like tentacle slither out from behind the shack and grab old Pearly. He screamed, and the gun fell out of his hand. And from the shadows, a head showed. A huge, worm-like head with slitted eyes and a mouth large enough to swallow a man. Which is what it did. Pearly didn't make that thing two gulps. Wasn't nothing left of him but a scrap of flesh hanging on the thing's teeth. I emptied a load of buckshot in it, slammed the gun open, and loaded her again. By that time, it was gone. I could hear it crashing off in the dark. I got the keys to the dozer and walked around back of the shack on tiptoe. It didn't come out of the dark after me. I cranked the dozer, turned on the spotlights, and went out there after it. It didn't take long to find it. It was moving across the dump like a snake, slithering and looping as fast as it could go, which wasn't too fast right then. It had a lump in its belly, an undigested lump. Poor old Pearly. I ran it down, pinned it to the chain-link fence on the far side of the dump, and used my dozer blade to mash it up against it. I was just fixing to gun the motor and cut that sucker's head off when I changed my mind. Its head was sticking up over the blade, those slitted eyes looking at me. And there, buried in that worm-like face, was the face of a puppy. You get a lot of them here. Well, it was alive now. Head was still mashed in like it was the first time I saw it. But it was moving. The head was wriggling right there in the center of that worm's head. I took a chance and backed off from that thing. I dropped to the ground and didn't move. I flashed the lights over it. Pearly was seeping out of that thing. I don't know how else to describe it, but he seemed to be drifting out of that jelly-like hide, and when his face and body were halfway out of it, he stopped moving and just hung there. I realized something then. It was not only created by the garbage and the heat. It lived off of it, and whatever became its food became a part of it. That puppy and old Pearly were now a part of it.
Now, don't misunderstand me. Pearly, he didn't know nothing about it. He was alive in a fashion. He moved and squirmed. But like that puppy, he no longer thought. He was just a hair on that thing's body, same as the lumber and wire and such that stuck out of it. And the beast? Well, it wasn't too hard to tame. I named it Otto. It ain't no trouble at all. Getting so it don't come when I call, but that's on account of I ain't had nothing to reward it with. Until you showed up. Before that, I had to kind of help it root dead critters out of the heaps. Sit down. I've got Pearly's thirty-two here, and if you move, I'll plug you. Oh. Here comes Otto now. That was Joe R. Lansdale's The Dump, as read by Rock Manor. Rock Manor has been featured as a voice performer on podcasts such as The No Sleep Podcast, Pseudopod, and Tales to Terrify. He's the producer of Manor House, hosted by The Phantom Collector, a horror audio anthology series featured on both iTunes and YouTube. Producer of The Black Tapes podcast, calls Manor House top-notch, and best-selling author Brian Keane says Manor House is like Tales from the Crypt. It's really fucking cool. Which Rock thinks is really fucking cool. Visit his website at manorhouseshow.com. Thank you, Rock. And our second story of the night comes from Sandra O'Dell. Sandra O'Dell is a full-time mom of two boys with special needs and the manager of the Dragon's Horde Games, her husband's game store. A sexual abuse survivor, an advocate for families with special needs, a lover of audio fiction, a sufferer of severe PTSD, and other mental health issues she wishes she'd never heard of and made it through a stroke in 2011. Sandra is also a shark aficionado, an avid reader, compulsive writer, and rabid chocoholic. Originally found in Fear of the Dark, Horrorbound Anthology, March 2011, we will now be hearing Sandra O'Dell's For Fear of Little Men. Once upon a time, there was a boy named Alton who longed to be a kobold and keep treasure in his stone shoes. That is, until one came to live under his bed, and he learned what horrid little creatures they truly were. The wicked thing smelt of licorice and Maymaw's kisses when she went too long without brushing her dentures. It hobbled around in its stone clogs in the dark of night, knocking over books and tumbling shoes off the rack. "'There's a cobalt living under my bed, Mama,' he said when his mother came to see what the fuss was all about. "'He pinched me here, and here, and even here.' "'There will be none of that, young man,' Mama said in her most sensible Mama voice as she tucked the brushed cotton quilt under his chin. "'You go to sleep this instant, and in the morning you'll pick up your room or else. "'You should take care of your things.' That night Alton realized Mamas did not know what it meant to have a cobalt living under one's bed. Most nights the wicked sprite kept Alton awake with sharp, twisty pinches. 
When he did manage to fall asleep, it would pull the quilt off his feet until his toes were fit to snap off in the cold. Those were the nights Alton liked the least, as he had to dare the treacherous expanse of coal tiled between his bed and his chest of drawers for a pair of wool socks or not make it back to sleep at all, because Mama said socks were not for bed. Other nights the cobalt left Alton quite alone to hobble around the house instead. Safe beneath the quilt, he listened to the unwholesome beast he muck about downstairs, pulling the cat's tail tipping over the flower-pots, making a mess of things. "'Why is there jam on the ceiling fan?' Mama wanted to know the next morning while tuning in the wireless on the counter. Papa looked up from the paper. "'What's wrong with the cat?' "'The wretched thing was in my begonias again,' Mama said, sucking on denters in need of brushing. Alta knew better.' It was the cobalt I heard it moving about last night. Nonsense, Papa said with a phlegmatic harumph. Now, kiss your grandmother. You're going to be late for school. That morning, Alton realized no one understood the least little bit about cobalts, and he'd have to take matters into his own hands. The next night, Alton curled on his side with the quilt tucked under his chin and his toes safe and warm in wool socks. The house settled to sleep with creaks and pops and groans. The icebox hummed a lullaby to the mixer and sink, the clock on the landing keeping time. His Aunt Bessany once called those telltale ticks and tremors once upon a time's. But she had left years ago without saying goodbye, and once upon a time's changed. Alton lay in wait, very still, very quiet. No sooner had Papa begun to snore than Alton heard the clunk thump of uneven steps under the bed. The moment the cobalt crawled out from the dusty hollow and reached up to give him a pinch on the backside, he whipped over quick as he could and grabbed the miserable thing around the throat with both hands, pinning the cobalt's arm between his bum and the mattress. The tiny hunchback was brittle leaves and chicken bones. Alton brought his thumbs together and squeezed until they met his fingers on the other side. The cobalt's eyes bulged and its mealy gray tongue protruded as Alton snapped its spindly neck with a tinder crack. The cobalt twitched once, twice, and then sagged limp and still as a bag of rocks in his hands. When he stopped shaking, Alton pulled up his socks and snuck downstairs for a knife to see if the cobalt really was filled with rocks. It wasn't, and Mama sent him to bed without supper the next night for making a sticky mess on the sheets. Alton knew what he must do after that. It seemed only he knew where to look. Strange, but the way it was meant to be, he supposed. And the more he looked, the less he liked what he found. There were hook-nosed gnomes in the grocer's bins and pixies peeking around the corners of pews. Catty spriggans hunched in the corners of prams. Mulchins hid under girls' skirts during class to tickle tender panty bits with sticky feathers. 
until the girls squirmed in their seats on long, sunny days. These were the weak folk, the gentry, the kindly musters. Some were more fair than others, but all were gimlet-eyed and not to be trusted. Alton read everything about them he could lay his hands on, paperbacks, encyclopedias, plays, TV listings. He skipped school to devote an entire... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Afternoon to a midsummer night's dream at the library, he learned about leprechauns, fuka and the foul-humored fur Derek with their backwards hands and four-foot-long beards. He compared the satyrs of Greece to the fawns of the British Isles and wondered if the Kiliakai of Papua New Guinea were more or less common than Sprigash. No detail was too small to note in the papers of his ever-growing collection of carefully organized composition books. The depth of his studies left Alton with little time for extracurricular activities, not that he minded, but the expectations of others were constant impositions. A boy your age should be on the field, not behind the stacks, Papa said the day he signed Alton up for the local youth football league. But I don't want to play football. Of course you do. I did when I was your age. Listen to your father, dear, Mama said, and set to organizing the league carpool. The majority of Alton's schoolmates were equally understanding. Dooley girl, Brenton Payne said, turning the composition book every which way. What's a dooley girl? It's pronounced dooley girl, and it's from Australia. I would like my book back now, Brenton. Alton kept his voice as low and reasonable as he could. His hands balled into fists at his sides. The rugby captain wrinkled and creased the pages as he ham-handed his way through the book. Is this what you're doing with your time in the library, Waddlemouth? Brenton's cohorts, Peter Willich and pig-eyed Alan Hembridge, snickered at the bullying wit. What's a Fomorian? Alton took a slow breath. Ephemorian is a Celtic sort of face, supposedly supplanted by the Tuatha Dé Danann in Ireland. 
Now, if you don't mind, I really do need my book. My parents are expecting me home in time for dinner. That's an awful lot of patty talk, Peter said, kicking at the tender green shoots sprouting in the cracks of the walk. You soft at the IRA, hmm? I'm studying, that's all. I can do what I want with my time. Alton was more annoyed than angry with the upper-class men. They wallowed in ignorance and praised the fashionable stench. The red caps leering from their jacket pockets were another matter entirely. Studying fairies is more like it. Brenton eyed Alton with the superiority of the popular. You're a fairy, Waddlemouth. You're a poo pirate. As much as you are, said Alton. And as the color of truth rushed up the other boy's cheeks, Alton dashed forward, snatched the precious black and white book, and bolted down the street. Alton's bold tongue bought him enough time to make it halfway down the block before the others realized what was said and took off after him. His heart pounded in his chest as he dashed around the corner, a pippin in a barrel of pippins nattering and cackling as he sped by. Someone's mother called him a wicked name, and drivers stood on their horns and brakes as he tore across the street and rounded a corner smoke shop. The composition book clutched to his chest as he searched for sanctuary from the inevitable. The trio's angry threats assaulted his ears, and then they were on him as he made to dart into a confectioner's shop. Peter took him low, and Brenton came in high, slamming him to the walk as they pummeled and kicked and called him a miserable gay boy and fucking patty poof and other things that hurt less than their fists. Three-on-one was a losing fight. Alton protected the book with his body and waited for the worst to be over. When an East Indian shopkeep finally chased off the dirty crows, Alton made it to his feet and gave the man a fake name and phone number to ring his parents. He limped off before the ruse was discovered. The memory of the red cap's maniac laughter grated like fingers down the chalkboard of Alton's soul. Safe at home, he complained of a sour stomach and went straight to his room. A grig was perched on his windowsill, twiggish and coy, singing to the coming night. Alton made it to the sill in two quick steps and slammed the window shut on the beastie's eggshell head. He wiped up the mess with a handful of tissues and hit the refuse at the bottom of his waste can. That evening, Alton accepted Mama's offering of broth and toast, but did not stray from under the covers until she was gone. Mama let him stay home from school the rest of the week. For all his devoted scholarship, nothing compared to hands-on experience. A book could not adequately detail the care needed to peel away the smooth birch bark of a hamadryad's face, or how it was best to pinch and give a sharp twist when tearing the wings from a sylph's back. Alton took prodigious notes. Upon completing his year thirteen, the young man collected his award from Maymaw's meager estate and spent a heady ten months on the continent, seeing the sights and gathering souvenirs. Years later, the tiny gold loom unearthed from a Sardinian Domos de Hanas would stand out as the crowning glory of the trip. The opportunity to crush the moon-pale Hana was worth his parents' censure after they paid the restitution for the charges of malicious mischief.
He could have hoped the rush of exploration would survive homecoming and the snobbery and intolerance of university, but hope, like nobility, shouldered a heavy burden. I wasn't stalking her, I was trying to help her, Alton said as he trot down the library steps. By following her home from the pub and waiting in the bushes for an eiffel through her bedroom window, Havir gave back, slightly out of breath as he hurried beside his study mate. Face it, Alton, you're not the type of fellow that has a girl saying no and meaning yes. What would you know about it anyway? Stone lions at the bottom of the stairs ignored them. Pesci's lurking in the folds of the granite mains picked their crooked noses and flung crusty gems on the pair as they passed by. Fair turn more than you, it seems. You're lucky no one pressed charges. Alton scrunched his shoulders. Pierre. It was a spring day to test the resolve of those dedicated to good grades and the monthly check from home. The semester's cliques lounged in shady fellowship beneath stout oaks and leafy elders, while the slow, spicy red of bossa nova music spilled from an open window like a curtain of thick silk. Alton would have liked to find a bench in the sun where he could catch up on Nandor Pogain's Magyar fairy tales from old Hungarian legends, but the inescapable fey presence curdled the moment and his mood. He realized after the fact that Javier had asked a question. Come again? What's this protecting Megan, anyway? Hey, let's get a quick nosh before class. Uh, sure, yeah. Alton allowed varieties of truth to sort themselves out as they opted for curry noodles at a table in the sun. Have you ever had the feeling you're being watched, he said, picking out the shredded carrots. Javier glanced up from his plate. You mean like watched or watched watched? Alton sipped at his beer. The latter, I suppose. Something like that, anyway. Not really. Why? Alton tipped his glass in the direction of a hamadryad dozing in the comfortable embrace of her oaken self. The people around her, none the wiser. Take a look over there and tell me what you see. A tree and some people. What else? Uh, Nina Dobson's talking on her cell. There's a packy with a throwing disc. Is this multiple choice? What about the tree? What about it? It's an oak tree, big, woody, got leaves. Is there anything different about it? Alton said carefully. Havir took his time answering. Not that I can tell. It's a tree, is all. And what if I were to tell you that the tree is alive? I wouldn't call the times, that's for certain. I mean it, Alton leaned across the table. It's alive. Kefir eased away from Alton's insistence. So it's alive. What's that have to do with being watched? Because it's the tree that's watching, you see. Something inside the tree. Part of the tree, actually. You mean like a camera? Kavir dropped his voice as he cut a look at the crowd once more. No, no, not a camera. The tree has a hamadryad inside, or is a hamadryad, depending on your school of thought. A hammer what? 
hamadryad. It's a fay of, of a sort. Alton sat back. A familiar headache picked at the tender spot between his eyes. A thin black claw. Pick, pick, pick. A fay, like an elf. Not an elf. That's more Nordic or something Tolkien pulled out of his arse for the masses. Who said anything about Tolkien? You're not listening to what I'm telling you. You're mental. You're not making any sense at all. We went from your skulking after Megan to being watched and naffing fairies. It all makes sense if you think about it. Hear me out, have. I'm not so mental as that. Alton's fork kept unconscious time with his words, picking tiny holes in the wax paper plate. Pick, pick, pick. I wasn't stalking, Megan, I swear. I thought she was in trouble from a Gancana. Never heard of him, Javier said, and rubbed his teeth with a crumpled napkin. Not a him, not directly. A Gancana is an it that looks like a him, a fae from Ireland. They're known for taking a fancy to a woman, having a go with her, and then leaving her so desperate for more that she pies away until she dies. He looked for a glimmer of understanding in the midst of Javier's uneducated skepticism. I can't really say how it managed its way to campus, but I knew that if the Gancana got its leg over with Megan, she was as good as dead. The memory of the slender, foppish Gancana was vivid in daylight as the reality had been three nights ago outside Megan Holmes's flat. Lucky for her, Alton had been nearby to scare the wretched thing away. What was the Hymadryad thing you doing? Nothing at all. It wasn't there. So what's with being watched? You're saying that this gay fella... Not gay. Faye. Had an eye for Megan, and that's why you were following her after she turned you down. Alton ground his teeth in frustration. He relaxed his jaw to speak. I wasn't following her. I saw the Gancana and wanted to help. That's all. So what's this to do with the tree, then? It doesn't have anything to do with the tree, have. What I'm saying is that the Hamadryad is a different sort of fae than the Gancana, and that they're both real. Javier shook his head as he finished off his curry, scraping at the last sheen of sauce and licking his fork clean. If you say so, but you sound off your chump and then some. I am not mental, Alton said testily, following his former confidant to the waste bin. We'll see who's mental next time Pitch catches you so much as looking cross-eyed at Megan. Tell him about your fairies and see what happens. Come on, let's get on to class. Much later, under the righteous cover of darkness... Alton returned to the commons and hammered an iron spike into the hamadryad, pounding the metal head flush with the soft inner bark. He sat at the nearest table and listened with eyes closed until the screams died away. Alton kept to his own company about the truth after that. He redoubled his efforts in Japanese immersion courses, adding Spanish immersion as a second line of study. He transcribed his journals into both Spanish and Japanese as a means of improving on his lessons. 
Professors lauded his merit. Classmates were less flattering. Walton welcomed the white-collar world after graduation. Work as a translator was plentiful and easy to come by, allowing for numerous opportunities to travel and other benefits sublime. One Tokyo summer was a celebration of contract negotiations finessed over Katsuo, offered Omakasi, and the subtle differences in the debts of Kami and Kamui. In Mexico City, he walked the half-lit autumn streets with his shirt inside out to confound the Shineks. Their blood reminded him of currant jelly as it spattered on the whitewashed walls. His home office was in New York City, an endless buffet of potential and variety. Alton drank in the city's brash charm. Leasing a comfortable one-bedroom flat on Manhattan's Upper West Side, where he hung prints of Picasso's The Old Guitarist and Kandinsky's Yellow, Red, and Blue. He furnished the rooms with simple lines, hearing his mother whisper with every selection. On occasion, he treated himself to black truffles and scallops at Restaurant Daniel and fresh hoyosh and gerbo from the Hungarian bakery at the corner. Except for the want of a decent pub and a touch of culture, the Big Apple might have been London. During the workday, Alton ignored the office brownies when others were about and stepped on them when no one was in sight. On the nights when the weather was reasonably fair, he donned a light jacket, pocketed an umbrella, and set off by taxi or bus to search the slyways for the city's odious beasties and bogums. The hunt made for long, lonely nights, but Alton was never happier than when he found what he sought, a pleasure reminiscent of a quilt tucked under his chin. To do the deed, he usually carried a stubby iron dagger that relied more on force than an edge to penetrate, a bundle of plastic baggies wrapped in a rubber band, and a pair of needle-nose pliers. One night, when March's lion paused to catch its breath, Alton cut out the eyes of what he was certain was a mazikeen from the Jewish sensibilities of the Lower East Side. He never discovered why it was alone in Riverside Park. The memory of how it flowed and rippled lingered in his palms for months. While waiting for a cab one evening after a dinner of crab and corn chowder with a dark lager to wash it down, Alton realized the iridescent ripple in the direction of the reservoir was not a trick of the rain, but a nagasaniya, slithering back to its watery home. He abandoned the street corner and followed the dreadful thing as it undulated sedately along, careful to keep his distance and stay downwind. The next night, Alton lured it to the surface with a bottle of wine, and the smoke of a clove cigarette. The snake woman savored the wine, breathed the essence of cloves, and barely made a sound as Alton skinned it alive. He rolled the tender ribbons of the remains into the black water for the honest bottom feeders. The skin was a trophy he sometimes lay beside on the bed, rolling and unrolling it with a slow hand for many nights afterward. Being a sensible fellow, he was not completely blind to the discarded gristle of the human condition during these sojourns. After gathering moonlit pixie wings one clear night, 
all conducted to an adult bookstore to avoid a trio of feminists looking for a man to hate. The clerk paid Alton as much attention as he did the men pretending not to fondle the pink folds of used women. Uncomfortable with the thought of duplicitous patronage, Alton purchased a plastic-wrapped paperback depicting two women touching lips. He tossed it out the next morning on his way to buy a display case for the wings. He would have preferred to avoid people altogether, but cities defied reason and people were often inconvenient. He was forced to take a brick to a drunk who refused to surrender a bottle of Thunderbird with a gleefully pickled Cahoolin within. The affair left him queasy for days. The unfortunate events with that little packy girl and the immune living in her pink sneakers left his bowels in nervous misery and kept him home from work for a week. He heard her mother's screams in his sleep. A feverish ache settled into his bones every time innocence suffered for the fickle delinquencies of the gentry. There were days Alton couldn't bring himself to get out of bed, but war was hell, and there was nothing to do but carry on in the name of acceptable losses. In their memory, Alton kept the kettle on the boil and maintained his journals with punctilious measure. What is the nature of God when innocents are made to suffer and die? He carefully scribed one cold December evening the desperation of someone's daughter and a bloody two-by-four chill and bruised in his memory. Men speak of sin, yet true evil is allowed Congress with the unsuspecting. Perhaps God is nothing more than a collection of blind men blaming the fellow next to them every time they lift the cheek on the pew. What? The voice was gruff with a distinct Brooklyn twang. You're not happy jerking off like the rest of the kooks? Alton whirled around, knife in hand. The headlamp around the brim of his hat clashed with the intruder's flashlight, birthing strange shadows in the cold February rain. The elder mother creaked and moaned piteously at his back. Pardon? It was the first thing that came to mind, a brittle, sensible word. The other took a step back, resting a free hand on a bulge at its waist beneath the red poncho. What say you drop the knife and bring those hands up, Kay? That's when Alton recognized a dark uniform under the poncho and the brim of the patrolman's hat. His stomach tumbled with a surge of relief and dismay all at once. He realized he probably looked quite the sight, soaked to the bone and covered in splinters and sap. He lowered the knife but did not drop it. You startled me, officer. I didn't hear. Yeah, I noticed. I said drop the knife. No, no, let me explain. Just for a moment, this isn't... The beat cop's hand reached under the poncho as he took half a step to the left. I ain't going to tell you again. Drop the knife. Fear made Alton's palms sweat. Annoyance tightened his grip on the sticky handle. You don't have to take that tone with me. This is no ordinary tree. He raised both hands to shield his eyes from the golden lance of the flashlight's beam. I... The officer pulled his nightstick and stepped into a swing as leaves rustled and whispered overhead. 
Alton rushed the man, knocking him aside as shadows and branches swayed treacherously near. Alton struck high and sure at the wicked tree, burying his knife in a meaty limb that sagged under the impact. Red flowed slick and wet in the headlamp's light. A two-human screamed, gouged a jagged hole in Alton's thoughts as the blade jerked free. Light and rain rushed to fill the void, tearing away Alton's thoughts like strips of bloody reason. The elder mother behind him shifted and mewled. The red fairy before him snarled something wicked and reached for the signal horn on its shoulder. Fearing what might answer the call, Alton brought the knife up and down with sharp insistence over and over until the red fairy slid off the blade to the cold, wet ground. A policeman once more. And then Alton's legs were running, taking him along. He had to get away, far away. He raced across lanes of flashing lights and shrieking horns, trying to find his way in the night as a fire built in his belly, cramping and twisting until he was hunched over and sobbing as he ran. The night assaulted him in fits and starts, staggering over a curb, suicidal raindrops cold against his face, the red hand of God flashing on a yellow post, commanding him to stop. Fumbling with the metallic clatter of his keys in the lock, icy porcelain against fevered cheeks. For days Alton huddled on the Davenport, taken prisoner by his own fevered dreams. He huddled beneath a pile of blankets, sweating through the pain, screaming when there was nothing else he could do. When he could think at all, he wondered what he had done to deserve such hell. It was only a man, another innocent in the war. There was nothing to be done of it. Stop laughing at me. It's not my fault. He knocked the phone off the hook when the ringing became too much to bear. The monotone operator was his only friend until she left without saying goodbye. The black claw heard the buzzing of the deadline and came to see what all the fuss was about. It took its time between his eyes. Pick, pick, pick. He cursed Mama in the kitchen and cried when Mama didn't give him an extra biscuit with tea. Tea, flea, me, tree, whee, until he threw up, threw up, flew up, grew up. Alton slept when he could, and poorly, until white-hot pokers thrust through the meat of his legs and hat-pins jabbed behind his knees. He drew his legs tight against his body in the darkness. He had a mouth and screamed without sound, trying to think beyond the threshold of pain and remembering until he forgot again. The nonsense made no sense. Sense, hence, fence. He screamed again and this time managed a grunt, phlegmy and shallow, but a sound. Sound, yes, sound was good. Pain was pain everywhere and all over, from his teeth to his bum to his toes, but sound meant he was alive. Sound 
could not penetrate the dark, but the dark was his own doing, and also it opened his eyes. The world was a blur of grey and black lit by a feeble light somewhere overhead. He struggled to stand and bumped his head on a low beam that hadn't been there when he lay down. A fairy trick, he was certain. Going forward on hands and pin-sore knees, Alton crawled through medicine-ball-sized wads of paper and massive plastic buckets until he passed under a thick curtain into a larger space. A cave? A hall? His eyes were weak and his swollen fingers lacked sensation that was not pain. He hobbled in shadows, twisted with loathing, calling out, I'll find you. You can't hide forever, you wretched imps, and hearing only coughs and harumphs and throaty squeals. Walton staggered around the cavernous expanse, tumbling over stacks of this and piles of that, not quite able to make it to the top of a curtained cliff. For those times when the space became too bright and his eyes swelled with miserable tears, Alton floundered about until he found the cubbyhole and dragged himself back inside, covering his shivering form with a plastic tarp like a degenerate on the street. I hate you! I hate you! The words were his anchor as he cried himself to sleep. Alton's sweat pain, a sour mash of spite and bile. It curdled his stomach when he longed for something warm to drink. Day or night, he was never certain. Dark, light, dark, yes, yes, better in the dark, unless it was light and darkness of another sort came to call. He needed to escape back to the world he knew. During one safe, comforting dark, yes, yes, dark, as Alton shambled to the larger chamber in search of an exit, a spear of yellow light from the cliff above his cubby struck him full in the face like the fires of heaven. Cursing and snarling, Alton tottered over to the curtain and pulled himself up as far as he could. Surprise turned to anger when he realized something fleshy held the light and kept moving it out of reach. Alton pinched the massive beast as hard as he could until the light fell away with a clatter and comforting dark returned once more. From outside the chamber came the thunder of giant feet taking massive steps. Alton dropped down the side of the cliff and squirmed into his cubby, putting his back to the far wall and covering himself with the tarp. The steps came nearer and a sheet of light crossed over the curtain but didn't penetrate. The ceiling creaked as whatever lurked at the top of the cliff shifted. Voices rumbled low and threatening, blind men mumbling prayers lifting cheeks on the pew. Alton listened and fingered the bits of hate rattling about in his stone shoes. And he lived happily ever after. That was Sandra O'Dell's For Fear of Little Men, as read by Martin Rato. In a variegated working life, Martin has been a parent, a technical writer, and software developer, a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, symphony musician, and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and collections of his poetry. 
Thank you, Martin. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Thank you.